0: As we come to God's Word, we're continuing in a series that uh, really is uh, indulging the associate pastors with their favorite psalms. Our goal in the coming couple of months in the evening service is to, to survey a variety of, of genres of psalms or types of, of psalms, and each week, uh, each of us is going to pick a, a psalm week by week to preach. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Kiefer talked about Psalm 126. It was a song of ascent. Uh, sense and a, a song of restoration and tonight I want to look together at psalm twenty nine psalm twenty nine is a psalm of adoration or praise to our god and as we as we read this psalm, I want us to just pause for a minute and consider what is probably obvious, what most of us probably know and believe, but I think is important and helpful for us to remember as we think about this scripture. And as we read this psalm, if this psalm is just David talking to us, then it's helpful. It's, it's helpful as, as another uh, believer in our God describing what he thinks uh, or knows about God. It's a helpful reminder of his character. But if this psalm is actually inspired by God's spirit so that it's not just David talking but is actually God talking to us, then this psalm is actually God telling us who he is and what he is like. And that's not just helpful, that's incalculably valuable and precious. Because these are the words of the great God and King of Heaven coming to us and saying, Here is who I am. Here is what I am like. And of course, that's exactly what we believe this psalm is. David's words, but also God's words, written to reveal who he is. So let's keep that in mind as we read Psalm 29. Follow along with me as we read this psalm. A psalm of David. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's pray. God, these are your words written to us to remind us, to tell us who you are, what you are like, your power and authority over all things. And I pray that tonight these words would do just what you tell us they will do at the end. They would give us strength And peace in our God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. According to tradition, this psalm, Psalm 29, was written for Israel's use at one of its three main festivals. Uh, You may remember that there were three main times in the course of the year where all Israel would gather in Jerusalem and gather at the temple to give praise to God. And uh, we're told both by the Septuagint as well as the uh, Hebrew tradition that this psalm was written for corporate worship at one of those times of of festival gathering. And I think uh, that's helpful as we read this to sort of imagine all of Israel coming from each corner of the 12 tribes to Jerusalem, gathering to worship at the temple and using the words of this psalm. You know, there's a lot of reasons why standing up here in this pulpit is a tremendous privilege, but not the least of which is to stand up here and hear the whole congregation of you singing. I hear the volume of the praises of God's people in a unique way. And I think it struck me particularly just a couple of years back when I stood up here on Easter morning with almost 900 people here in the, the uh, sanctuary And we heard all the voices raised in a resurrection hymn. There was a a power and and joy in hearing all of God's people lifted up in unison to praise God. And and I figure if if 900 people in this sanctuary can give that, that joyful power of praise to God, imagine what it was like for all of Israel to gather together and to all cry glory as they considered their God. And that's what's happening here. In the psalm, these words would have been so appropriate for the occasion, wouldn't they? So appropriate for God's people to gather together because they magnify the power and the name and the voice of the Lord. And the point that David is making in this psalm is that God is so great and God is so glorious. He's so in control and so enthroned over all things. And this all powerful God then is the source of the strength and the peace of his people. I think the psalm makes this point in three main sections. So let's let's work through the three main sections of this this psalm together tonight. Let's start with the first section, which is in verses one and two. The psalm begins by calling on heavenly beings to ascribe glory to God in verses one and two. You may remember um, the the words that we read at the beginning of our service from Isaiah chapter six. There in Isaiah chapter six. Uh, The the Lord God was was proclaimed by heavenly beings, by the seraphim, as being holy, holy, holy. Three times holy. Three times the seraphim proclaimed that he is absolutely complete and perfect in his holiness. God is, is utterly pure and perfect in his beauty and splendor and power and character. Well, here in the psalm, David calls on the heavenly beings again three times to ascribe glory to the Lord. You see that he says, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. It's this, again, this threefold call to utter praise to God. And I think you can hear then the heavenly beings not just saying glory to God, not just saying God is glorious, but shouting glory, 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 to the Lord who is worthy of full and complete and infinite praise, now I want to make sure we don't make any assumptions about the, uh, the text here. We're, we're in church, uh, many of us have been in church for many years. We probably uh, believe, of course, that, that God deserves praise, but why does God deserve praise? I want to make sure we look to the text here and see why does it tell us that God deserves praise? And in the next verse, the next uh, verse 2, we're told that we should ascribe, or the heavenly being should ascribe to the Lord glory because it is due to his name. We're supposed to ascribe him uh, the glory that is due his name. And I think that's an interesting statement, ascribe to him glory because it is due to his name. It's interesting because it's not the typical way we would think about names of people around us. If I were to introduce you to someone and say, "Hi, I'd like to introduce you to Tim, you should really pay a lot of respect to Tim. And if you were to say, well, why? Why should I respect Tim? And I were to say, well, because his name is Tim. The name Tim deserves respect. And would say, well... No, a name doesn't deserve respect. It's what people do. It's, it's who they are and what they've accomplished that deserves respect. And so we want to ask, well, what is it about the name of the Lord that deserves glory? Why should we ascribe glory? Because of his name. And here we're summoned to give glory to the Lord because his name is significant and worthy of praise. Praise. Of course, the Lord's name is is unique in a way that our names are not. The Lord's name captures all that he is and all that he's done. And I think, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that it is significant that David does not say, ascribe to God the glory, do his name, but says, ascribe to Yahweh, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, because I don't think... David is trying to highlight the fact that we give God praise just because he's God. He's highlighting the fact that the Lord, Yahweh, has acted in a certain way and has character that is such that is due his name. Because as soon as we get specific and we hear that David calls on us to praise Yahweh, the Lord, because his name deserves glory, our mind should immediately jump to Exodus chapter 3 when God calls himself Yahweh when God says that his name is the Lord. And if you jump to Exodus chapter 3 in your mind, you should be remembering the scenario there. That's where Moses is wandering in the desert, and he comes across the unusual sight of a burning bush. And out of that burning bush, God tells him, go back to Egypt. I'm going to use you to lead my people out of Egypt. And and, uh, Moses says, well, you know, how am I going to present this exactly to the leaders of Israel? What, what, what am I supposed to tell? What are they going to say when I say, you know, uh, there was this talking bush and the talking bush told me to, to lead you out of Egypt. You know, who are you, God? What should I tell them your name is? That's the question Moses asked. When the leaders of Israel ask me, what should I tell them that your name is? And God proceeds to say, I am who I am. Tell this people that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. I have observed you, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now that's a long name. But the Lord's name, he is saying, captures who he is and what he has done and you understand what God is telling Israel he's saying my name is the Lord I am Yahweh and that means several things it means I am who I am which means that I am eternal and completely self-sufficient I'm not dependent upon anyone else I am not a creature I am the creator over all I dwell and have eternal being in myself I am who I am But it also means that I am the God who chose to establish a covenant with you. I chose relationship with you, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with my people. And so the name Yahweh reminds us that he is a God who has revealed himself to us and is with us and has established his covenant with his people. And it means that God is the one who has promised to rescue Israel from Egypt and who then kept his promise of salvation So when we hear the name Yahweh, when we hear the name the Lord, all of this is wrapped up on that. When David calls on the heavenly beings and on all Israel to ascribe to the Lord, to Yahweh, the glory that is due his name, he is saying, the Lord, Yahweh, this is the one who is the creator of all. This is the one who came to us and revealed himself to us. This is the one who saved us and rescued us and entered into relationship with us. All that is bound up in the name Yahweh or the Lord. So when we hear David say, ascribe to Yahweh the glory that is due his name, he's bringing all of this back of who God is and what he has done. And he's saying, who could possibly put any limit to the praise and the glory that is due to the name of this covenant-making, redemption-working, self-sufficient God. This name deserves glory, glory, glory. That's what David tells us in these first two verses. Well, then the, Psalm, the psalmist moves on in the second section, which is verses 3 through 9. And here the psalmist uses the, the poetry of his song to try to give us a picture of, of the power and the authority of God. Who is the creator and king over all things. In other words, the psalmist has just called on us to give the Lord glory, and now he's going to try to unpack for us or help us understand more concretely just how worthy of glory this God actually is. And verses 3 through 9, give us a sevenfold description of the voice of the Lord. These verses, verses 3 through 9, are all structured around the voice of the Lord, which is repeated seven times. Count down through seven times. And the voice of the Lord, I think, is used in this repetitive sense to build up a crescendo of the impression of the power and glory of God. And so as you read through, you should be hearing the voice of the Lord thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord causes the deer to give birth. We get this building of power and of authority, and of all that comes with the voice of the Lord. And it leads to a climax at the end of verse 9, where the psalmist pauses and says, and everyone in his temple just shouts glory. That's the response of this, this building of, of, of the voice of the Lord. I want you to just notice two things about these seven verses, these seven verses that are oriented around the voice of the Lord. First, I think it's significant that these verses focus on the voice of the Lord. I'm sure that David could have uh, talked about God or referenced God in a number of different ways, but he chooses the voice of the Lord to focus on. And I think he does this because by referring to the Lord's voice, we are reminded that creating the entire universe out of nothing was not a struggle of enormous effort for the Lord, as, as impressive as, as that still would have been. It was rather a matter of just speaking a word. The Lord created everything just with his voice. The Lord spoke, and it happened. That is absolute power and authority. And it's not just amazing power and authority. It is absolute power and authority when someone can just say a word, and it happens. And I think we see this strength and control all throughout Scripture. Whether whether we think of creation where the Lord spoke and it happened. Whether we think of the parting of the Red Sea or the death of the whole Assyrian army in their sleep. Or when the Son of God stands up in a boat in the middle of a raging storm and speaks two words. Peace, be still. Three words. Peace, be still. And with the voice of the Lord, the storm is quiet. The awe this awe-striking greatness and authority of God are evident when we consider that he can do everything and he does it simply with his voice. The second thing I think we want to notice about these seven verses is that they take us on a tour of the most untamable, uncontrollable, and fearful areas of the world. And put yourself in, in the shoes of an Israelite living perhaps in or around Jerusalem. And these verses take you on a tour of geography into all of the most scary places, the places that are, are all beyond their power and asserts God's control over us. Look, look your way through here. Verses 3 and 4. The voice of the Lord rules over the sea. Now throughout scripture, the sea or the ocean is a symbol of chaos and untamable power. I think Revelation 21 actually captures this most beautifully when it says that in the new heavens, in the new earth, there is no ocean. There is no sea. It says the sea was no more. Now, for beach enthusiasts, that's a great disappointment. But I think what the author of Revelation is saying is there's no more chaos. There's no more fear. There's no more elements outside of uh, that, that seem to threaten you. It is gone. And so Psalm 29, Psalm 29 says, While the ocean waves thunder at the shores, and while the ocean waves will topple your boats in an instant, the voice of the Lord thunders over the waters and rules over them completely. Well, then in verses 5 and 6, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Now, you may remember from elsewhere in Scripture that the cedars of Lebanon were famous all throughout the region as the best wood. As the as the as these trees of strength, the strongest wood around. They were monuments of immovability and sturdy strength. I'm not sure if any of you have been out to to California and visited the the redwood forests in California. But as you drive into the forest and realize that, that if you just make a tunnel through the trees, you can drive your minivan through them without a problem. These are massive trees that seem utterly immovable, that tower into the sky. You know, who could possibly best one of these great trees? Maybe you have some idea, if you think about there, if you've been there, of how the people of Mesopotamia felt about the cedars of Lebanon. And yet the voice of the Lord breaks these cedars. The voice of the Lord snaps these cedars in half. In fact, the Lord and the voice of the Lord makes Lebanon, which is rooted in these magnificent trees, to skip like a calf. These trees have nothing compared to the voice of the Lord. Well, then you move on to verses 7 and 8. And the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames and shakes the wilderness. The deserts or the wildernesses were dangerous places where it was difficult to survive. They were places that you certainly couldn't cultivate them. You certainly couldn't tame them. You certainly couldn't bring some sense of order or control to the wilderness in the desert. There's nothing that man could do to change the desolation of the wilderness. And yet the Lord... The Lord can send rainstorms on the wilderness with a simple word. The Lord can tame it with flashes of fire. He can shake the wilderness with a word. And then verse 9, the forests are stripped bare by the word of the Lord. The forest was another place of of darkness and vastness that that emphasized our our smallness. It was easy to get lost in in the forest. It was difficult to overcome. And yet the Lord strips the forests bare. I hope um, I hope you take a, a look at the footnote that's in most of your Bibles, likely. the Verse 9 opens with this phrase, The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. But I think just about every commentator that I read from several hundred years ago till now agrees this probably should be translated, The voice of the Lord shakes the oaks. It's just one word that's uh, with a slightly different vowel. It's likely that it meant to read, The voice of the Lord shakes the oaks and strips the forests bare. The voice of the Lord, again, rules over this area of the world. And so talking about God's power and God's glory, the author takes us on this tour of the ocean, the wildernesses, the cedars of Lebanon, the forests, all these powers uh, that that seem so uncontrollable and seem so so, uh, fearful. The voice of the Lord is over them. And I think it's helpful to understand what the author, the psalmist, is doing here, because when we talk about glory or we talk about power, those are abstract words. You know, if we, if we say the Lord is glorious, we kind of know in the general direction what we're talking about, but it's, but it's an abstract word, and we have to kind of fill in what that means. Or if we say that the Lord is powerful, we know what it means to say that someone is powerful, but it's still kind of abstract. Well, how powerful? What kind of pictures should I have in mind? We do the same thing uh, with this all the time in language. I know that uh, I have always been known as a person who sometimes relates things rather dramatically. I think uh, it probably took my wife several years of disappointments to realize that when I came home and said, you're never going to believe what happened today, it wasn't actually all that life-changing. But we use words like, it was amazing, it was unbelievable. Or we say, we say things uh, from, from my high school days, the word was epic. It was totally epic. You know, we use these, these vague words to try to impress on people that something was, was amazing or unbelievable or great, but, but it's vague. How, what, what can we do to make that concrete? And so we might, we might use an analogy or something that we can picture to help communicate how great or how amazing something is. So we might say, for instance, we might say, uh, instead of saying, that house was outrageously huge, which could mean anything, really, we say, well, you know the Jones' house? Well, the Smith's house was three times the square footage of the Jones' house. And now we have a very concrete idea of how big the Smith's house was. Or, Or if we're trying to maybe communicate, when I tell my kids, you'll never believe how tall the Rocky Mountains are. And they're trying to picture, well, okay, well, how tall should I believe? How tall are they? And if I, but if I say, you know how far it is from our house to the giant grocery store? Imagine going that far straight up. That's how tall. The Rocky Mountains are, oh, now we can picture something. Now we have something concrete to say how tall they are. Well, that's what Psalm 29 is doing here. It's starting out saying, the Lord is powerful. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. But glory and strength are a bit abstract. So let me take you on a tour of some concrete images, some concrete things you know about. And tell you that the voice of the Lord rules over all of them. And then you will have a more concrete idea a better idea of just how powerful the Lord is. These pictures in verses 3 through 9 help God's people feel the weight of his power and authority in concrete terms. And I love how one commentator puts it when he says, The voice of the Lord resonates in heaven and on earth. The majestic effect of the poem leaves one awestruck and asking the question, Why is it that we as earthly creatures are not more overcome by the splendor and the glory and the power of our God. And that's the effect of these verses. And I think that has to be the first application for us in the psalm as well. I'm praying that you and I, just by reading the words of Scripture and by hearing this reminder, will leave awestruck and overcome by the splendor and the power and glory of the Lord who is enthroned as king over all creation. May these words echo in our heads because these words remind us of who this God is in very concrete terms and give us and give our hearts something to stand on as we go into this week. I'm praying that our hearts would be awestruck by the splendor of our God. Well, the third section of this psalm is verses 10 and 11. And as we consider applications from this psalm. This psalm actually makes the applications for us because verses 10 and 11 tell us how we should apply the knowledge of the glory and power of God to our lives. It tells us what it means for us at God's people. So look at these last two verses, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 declares that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood Far from being swept away from the flood, as any earthly king or palace would be, the Lord actually sits enthroned over the flood. If you live in a flood plain, you know that a flood can sweep everything away before it. And there's no earthly king that can stop the progress of the flood. And yet the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And his kingship is not a temporary one. He sits enthroned forever Verse 10 is reminding us that the Lord is sovereign over and in complete control of all things at all times forever. His power and authority then are always the support of God's people. And that brings us to verse verse 11. If you're using the ESV, Verse 11 says, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. But again, universally, all of the commentators that I read said this probably would be better uh, translated as the Lord will give strength to his people the lord will bless his people with peace in other words we shouldn't get the impression from these words that this is sort of like a wish of david like oh i hope that god gives you strength and peace that's not what the the verses are meaning here it is it is it is a statement of if the lord is enthroned forever then his people will find strength and peace in him if the lord is glorious like we have just seen, as he has just told us, that his people will find strength and peace. Let's look at each of those briefly. First, the psalm says that the Lord gives strength to his people. And if the Lord's power is infinite, and if the Lord dwells with his people, then he is able to help his people and strengthen them. If you think of maybe a battle analogy, I mean, most of us have at least seen some kind of war movie or read a war war account. Um, when, when, when soldiers are fighting in a desperate battle, and when they're attacked on every side, you picture a battalion of soldiers attacked from every side, weary of fighting, slowly giving ground, and wondering if they can possibly hold their line any longer, if they can possibly keep from being overrun. And then around the bend behind them appears an armored tank division of their own troops, The armored tank division doesn't just take over and win the battle for them. The arrival of those tanks actually gives renewed strength to the soldiers who are about to fall over. And so the very soldier who was giving up in hope and despair and weakness is suddenly re-energized with strength at the arrival of his his, uh, allied forces. And that's, I think, what we're supposed to understand here. As we as God's people walk through our daily lives... It is the arrival of the strength of the Lord, the reminder that the Lord is with us and on our side and is infinite in strength that strengthens our weak knees. You know, you and I, we, we daily walk through a life that is full of demands and busyness and pain and brokenness. And the path of life that you and I walk is a weary path. It is a path that at times feels crushing with the weight of its burdens, and we wonder how we can go on. At other times, perhaps it doesn't feel as crushing. Maybe there are times when we experience greater joy, but we still have to face the length of the journey. And when the Bible reminds us that God's people have to persevere, it's a reminder that the journey is long and it is tiring. And we are all going to come to days and go through times when we are weary of long fighting, when we're slowly giving ground, and we wonder if in our walk as God's people through life, if we can possibly keep from being overrun. And it's in those moments that the infinite power and glory of the Lord come to us, come to his people, and strengthen us, and hold us up. And it's this picture of the enthroned Yahweh giving strength to his people that reminds me of the verses that many of you know so well and I think fit this context so perfectly from Isaiah chapter 40 where we're told the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He sits in utter control of everything, Isaiah 40 tells us. And then it says, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable and he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. These are beautiful words of strength and encouragement, but they're not just words that we write up on a wall and say, whenever I read it, then I'll be strong again. They're words that are rooted in the fact that God is enthroned as the all-powerful, perfectly in control God of his people. And so it is this God who comes to us and is with us and strengthens us in weakness. The Lord is enthroned over us. He is enthroned all around us with infinite and eternal power. And that is why he gives strength to his people. Well, Verse 11 also tells us that the Lord will bless his people with peace. And I think if you're, actually, if you're paying attention to the words that we've read and you're, and you're listening carefully to the words the psalmist uses, I think it's kind of ironic that the psalm details the Lord's power with words like shake, flash, thunder, strip. These words of violent, violent power, violent authority. And yet the effect of words like thunder, flash, strip bare is to bring peace to God's people. One commentator put it this way. He said, the Lord opens up the heavens and unleashes his blessings of protection and peace. And that beautifully put, the very power of God that is seen in these dramatic displays of thunder and lightning and, and shaking is the power that protects God's people and so brings peace now let's be careful not to let the discussion of peace make it seem like the Lord's power and protection just make the the Christian's life into a nice little protected snow globe or a precious moments collection or something like that each one of you could chronicle stories of pain and anxiety anger and depression and even in the very next Psalm, Psalm thirty, a few words later, David is going to cry, You hid your face, God, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death, O God? There's a cry of pain. And so when we hear that the Lord brings peace, it's it's not saying that, that everything painful, that everything anxious is going to be removed. But it's in these times of pain, it's in these times of being overwhelmed. It's through those times that knowing that the Lord is enthroned over all creation gives us peace. I think, I think about it this way. When everything is going well and it is peaceful, anyone can have peace. When everything is going perfectly, anyone feels at peace. It's when things are going badly, when things seem out of our control, that we need the strength and the power of Yahweh. When we need to know and to remember that the Lord is enthroned over all in order to bring peace. In times of trouble, only those who know that their enthroned Lord is in control of all things, only those people can find reason for peace. And I think many of us can testify to God's faithfulness to bring us measures of peace that are inexplicable given our situations when we remember the name of Yahweh, our powerful, creator, saving Lord. So here we are. Here we are at the end of Psalm 29. God has reminded us that he is so great, that he is so glorious, that he is so in control and enthroned on high. And the psalmist has reminded us that as we cry glory and we remember the power and might of our God, that this great and glorious God who is in control over all things is the one who brings us strength and brings us peace because of who he is and what he has done on our behalf. What a glorious reminder. Let's pray. God, I pray that first and foremost, as we leave tonight, we would be the ones echoing this cry and all in his temple cry glory because your word has given us pictures in very concrete terms, of how great your power and authority and glory are. And so I pray that we would be awestruck and overwhelmed at the splendor of our God. And I pray that we would stay there. Because as we remember your glory and your power and your authority over all things, it is that knowledge that gives us strength and peace. And I pray that it would give strength and peace to your people this week. And we pray this through Christ our Savior's name. Amen.